This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, my special guest is Katie Stockton. She is the Chief Technical Strategist at BTIG, a New York-based uh, brokerage firm, the institutional brokerage firm. If you are at all interested in really some of the details of a practitioner in the field of technicals who are using it as part of their process to advise uh, substantial hedge funds, pension funds, mutual funds, really large pools of institutional money, uh, then this is the sort of conversation that you're going to enjoy. We very much go into the weeds and we talk a lot about very, very specific technicals and processes and how she approaches uh, the market. She She's an award-winning uh, technician who is highly respected on the street. And really, it's, it's a... Um, uh, quite a change in the world to look at technicals today uh, as is accepted and part of the firmament of finance compared to 10 or 20 years ago when they were kind of looked uh, looked at askance. And I think the between the rise of quantitative uh, analysis and, and the computing power that really lets us see, hey, is, are these technicals genuinely providing value or not? That, that's helped them gain uh, broad acceptance. Uh, so if you're at all interested in trading, charting, uh, anything technical, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. With no further ado, my interview with Katie Stockton. My guest today is Katie Stockton. She is the chief technical strategist for BTIG in New York City. Previously, she was chief market technician at MKM Partners. She has also been a trader for Ulysses Management, a fairly substantial New York hedge fund. Uh, she also was a publishing analyst for the technical strategy group at Morgan Stanley. She is a CMT, and she received her designation in 2001. This year, 2017, uh, she was named Best Institutional Brokerage for Equity Research uh, at the Technical Analysts Award for the technical research she provides. Katie Stockton, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. Let, let's start with a little bit about your background. How did you find your way to Wall Street? What what attracted you to stocks, bonds, and charts? Well, I think it was really meant to be. Early on, I had an interest in mathematics, and, and that took me into a finance major in college. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, um, you know, that finance major obviously exposed me to, you know, all things Wall Street, of course, mm -hmm. but also exposed me to technical analysis, which is, of course, what I do today. In college? In college, believe it or not. Really? So, so what sort of classes were you taking where they talked about charts? Because... It seems that at the academic level, other than people like Professor Andrew Lowe at MIT, who writes about technicals in The Heretics of Finance, academics look askance at technicals. Well, you know, I think there's a, a good trend there, quite mm -hmm. frankly. But no it, pun it's intended. Still, 
<laughs> still early stages, right? Uh-huh. We haven't broken out yet. Um, but when I uh, I went to University of Richmond in Virginia, a smaller school, and it just happened to have coursework in technical analysis. Believe it or not, it was wow. one of at the time it was one of twelve universities that offered this, and now there's far more. But even still, I just got lucky in a way that they offered that coursework at the I believe it was a four hundred level finance class, and at the time it was offered to graduate students. So I audited it, uh-huh. and that gave me the exposure to some of the tools that I now use. So you had the bug pretty early in your in your I career. I did, yeah, and I had an internship while I was at college uh, for a firm called Dorsey Wright and Associates. If you've heard of them, not only have I heard of them, but Tom Dorsey was a previous guest on the show. Is that right? Yes. And Tom is great, and and um, I'm guessing you'll eventually ask me who my mentors are, and uh, Tom coming. Dorsey will come up again that, that <laughs> in our conversation. He's a, obviously a great person and a great technician, and really helped inspire me to do it for a living. Point and figure. So we'll get into point and figure. I'm gonna at uh, versus other types of of charting later. Um, so I've spoken to various technicians who began their career either as fundamental analysts or strategists, and said, you know, I'm really more interested in the supply and demand of stock transactions than the broad, I don't want to call it guesswork, but the broader, less technical things. You apparently never had that sort of bug. You went straight into the charting side. I went straight into it. And uh, like I said, it just seemed like it was fate for me to to do what I do now because it's such a great... um, mesh of the the mathematical side of things and and it really resonates with me in terms of analyzing a stock as a stock not just as representative of a company because as we all know you'll see a market move affect various stocks in a way that makes no sense from a fundamental perspective so to be able to understand how that's happening why it's happening and and really what's happening um, I think that's very valuable so when I took the course the technical analysis course with Ralph Acampora, one of the things that have stayed with me was a, a quote of his. And Ralph said, fundamentals tell you what to buy, technicals tell you when. What do you think? Well, there's undeniably a great market timing element that you can derive from the charts. And I would also argue, though, that you can use them for idea generation, and it becomes a matter of preference. So I think of technical analysis as really a complementary discipline. So it's mm-hmm. not a standalone in the same way that I don't think macro, you know, economics or fundamentals should also, you know, be a standalone. I think together you can get a great um, sort of rounded view of a market or a security. And, and, you know, if the fundamentals help you decide what to buy and then you use technicals or charts to understand your best entries and exits, that's definitely one use. So there's a lot of risk management involved in, in using Completely, charts. Completely, yeah. They can be very valuable, especially for a cell discipline, which I think a lot of people are lacking. For sure. So, so what does technical analysis actually measure? When you're looking at a chart of a stock, what are you really looking at? You know, it's it's prices, right? So the market really lends us one data point, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's price. And I would argue that volume um, is is another one, but yet has really lost some of its value in terms of having an, any predictive information. Why is to that? It. Why is volume not? Because oh, I, I began as a trader, mm-hmm. and it was always volume precedes price. You heard that constantly. Is that no longer true? Well, it used to be. Yeah, you'd need to see volume expanding into sustainable uptrends, and that that was the stuff of the text books way back when. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we've seen volume on, on the decline since about 2007, so about 10 years now. Is and that because of the financial crisis? 
this or the rise of indexing or I think many it's different a things? Little, it's many different things. I mean, there's obviously derivatives. We have so many different um, influences on volume these days. And, and I would argue some of them are not um, real volume. I mean, there's always a buyer and seller, right? But are these committed buyers? Are they, you know, um, real sellers? So, or are they passive, you know, indexers or, or are they high frequency traders? So you just, you can't really understand if the volume is real these days. And then it's also been on the decline. So you have these influences that make it just that much less helpful, in my opinion. So to me, I'm, I'm very much just looking at prices. And prices can be incredibly informational. And, and of course, those prices are measuring supply and demand. And it's just that simple. Let's talk a little bit about what the chief technical strategist does. What does your process look like? Where do you begin? Well, I am a sell-side research analyst, so I work for a broker-dealer, BTIG, here in Manhattan. Your clients are mostly large institutions? Right. All pension. institutional clients, and it runs a gamut in terms of hedge funds, mutual funds, um, really anyone who can benefit from this kind of analysis, which I would describe as top-down in mm -hmm. nature, uh, but I also do a lot of bottom-up work to support that, or my version of bottom-up work so is, when, is probably quite different than what we all know. So typically. that's what I was going to ask. When you say top-down, you're really looking at markets, different types of asset classes, different sectors, and That's bottoms right. up are specific companies? Is That's that a good exactly to... right. I do tend to be equity-centric, mm -hmm. and um, at BTIG, we are a global financial services firm, so I've branched out and looked at more than just U.S. and to really global equity markets. And, and I do start with the major indices, the equity indices. I look at sector benchmarks, things like that. And then, of course, anything that really influences equities, whether it's commodities, FX, things like that. So that's where I start, and I think it's an important place to start in a um, an environment that is so sort of top-down driven, right, where, mm -hmm. where the macro influences are so important and really are the drivers of some of the trends. And uh, to understand that's very important. I mean, if you're, if you're um, you know, right on the market, generally you're probably going to have a much better, you know, time sure. at being right on any individual company. And then I do also look at the market, um, you know, just at, based on the stocks that comprise the major indices. So every week, every other week, in fact, I'll do either international or U.S. and, and take a list of 500 stocks and look at those one by one. And it's a bit tedious, but um, that process to me helps me in my, my market views, but mm -hmm. also can help us understand where there is opportunity, um, whether it's breakouts or breakdowns or a theme-based opportunity. So we're just looking for developments on the charts and themes. So when you're looking at charts, are you looking specifically for either extensions of trends or breaks of trends? Are you looking at specific patterns? What is it that catches your main focus? Well, I, I really do believe, as you could imagine, in trend following. Mm -hmm. I think that you generally want to have your core long exposure in you know securities that are in long term uptrends. I think and there's a lot of academic support for for that. Certainly, yeah. You know, a, a trend in motion tends to stay in motion, and and yet where I can also add value to our clients is in understanding where there might be an inflection point or a you know deteriorating momentum, that type of thing. So we do spend a lot of time looking for signs of trend exhaustion. Mm -hmm. um, how, how would you how would you look for trend exhaustion and how would you define that? There there's I'd say there's three classes of indicators that I use. The mm -hmm. first would be momentum or trend following. The second would be overbought oversold and the third would be relative strength. So to arrive at that trend exhaustion signal, I'm typically looking at the overbought oversold measures. So for me that would be a stochastic oscillator or Tom DeMarc's suite of indicators tend to help 
uh, with that as well. Mm -hmm. And what what don't you look at? What are the sort of things that you just don't find of a lot of value, at least to your process? Right. And it's very specific to the individual, of course, what you have success with. And what I always recommend to people is to to have a process (laughs) and Mm -hmm. whatever that process may be to be consistent and somewhat systematic in the way you approach it. Because what you learn is that these indicators, while they'll fail you often, uh, you learn where they tend to fail you. And it's all in really how you combine the indicators that you arrive at a market view. And um, so it's- It's fairly probabilistic. No one indicator is a sure thing but a collection of indicators give you a better chance. That's of- exactly right. And it helps to take out some of the gray area of the market. So I, I really welcome those kinds of tools that are a bit more mathematically derived and less visual, uh, but to really just enhance what you're seeing more visually because you can't take that element away, of course. Right. But what I don't use would be, um, I don't use many um, you know, wave analysis. So no Elliott Elliot Wave? No Elliott Wave for me. I, I don't Does use Does anyone still cycles. use Elliott Wave today? A lot of people do, in fact. Really? And, and um, it my experience is, is that they tend to be more bearish than not. And, How's that um, worked out the past Well, years, yeah. <laughs> And so I think, you know, maybe that could be more successful when overlaid with some of the momentum tools. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else I, don't you use? What, what do you think of Fibonacci I love as Fibonacci. a trading tool? Well, it's not really a trading tool, but it's um, a way to identify support and resistance, right? Mm-hmm. So that can be very valuable. In fact, I think if, if any takeaway that you have from the charts, support and resistance should be where you start because that's your gauge of risk right. and reward. So Fibonacci's can be very, very helpful in that regard. They're a little difficult to explain to clients, as you could imagine, uh, because the why do they work? Ratio, yeah, why, right. yeah, why do they work? It, it's, it's a ratio throughout nature. It's, it's true. Uh, and it's, I don't want to mansplain Fibonacci because you're the expert. <laughs> I wish but, I wish you would. In <laughs> fact, uh, it, it is the golden ratio, which is found in all sorts of um, in proportions of leaves and, and in um, the nautilus shells and in all sorts of other things like that. And as you said, we're not really sure why it works or, or right. how it works, and, but it uh, certainly seems to be there. It, it does matter, and it can be really helpful when you don't have more traditional means of deriving support and resistance, and by that I would mean something like a moving average, a 200-day moving average, or a, a peak or a trough on the charts. So my friend Todd Harrison, who used to be a chief trader at a hedge fund, used to say is uh, with things like Fibonacci, when we would be debating how well they work or didn't work, is the support there because of the Fibonacci or is the Fibonacci there because of the support? Or in other words, if everybody believes something is the case, does it just become a self-fulfilling prophecy or is something else going on? You know, I mean, we, we could talk about that. I don't think there's any real answer to that question, unfortunately, except to say that where things are self-fulfilling, great, <laughs> because <laughs> we, we welcome that. And, uh, you know, I'd say the Fibonacci's would be less obvious as something that would be self-fulfilling in that it's a subjective approach to, to drawing those ratios on the mm-hmm. charts, whereas something like the 200-day moving average would be more likely to have that self-fulfilling nature as support resistance because there's so many eyes on it. Let's talk a little bit about technical analysis. For the layperson, 
Explain to us what technical analysis actually is. Well, you know, people know know it as charting, right? Mm -hmm. So you take um, a, a price. Any security has a price. And what we're using is that price as a gauge of supply and demand for that security and trying to understand the trends behind that. And not only the trends, but also when they might end. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that's the design of technical analysis. We're trying to understand where there might be a shift in that supply-demand relationship just using price-based analysis. So early in your career, you worked for Tom Dorsey at Dorsey Wright, and they are famous for point and figure charting. How does that chart differ from just a regular price chart? Um, it's that, incredibly that we're used different. To? Yeah, you know, when you look at it, it, it looks almost like a tic-tac-toe sheet mm -hmm. with X's and O's. And, and the most important distinction is that it doesn't really reflect time on the x-axis in the same way that a, a typical bar chart, which would have open, high, low, closed data, would. Um, I tend to use the bar charts more now, in part because it was difficult uh, on a in a sell-side position to explain exactly why we should care about these X's and O's. But um, they're really such, such a useful uh, way of looking at the market is to understand the supply and demand that goes into the X's and O's that you're plotting on these these grids. Um, great for trend following, great for understanding breakouts and breakdowns, um, but you know they, they omit a volume component. Right. And, um, so and then, no volume, no time, just buying and selling. Yeah, just buying and selling, like, you know, has price moved enough to designate another plot, basically. Mm -hmm. What are, what are some of the big misconceptions about technical analysis? I, I, we've heard people say over the years, that stuff is just voodoo. Oh, and they're still saying it, some of them. <laughs> but Well, I've been doing this for about 20 years, and I'd say it's come a long way. Mm -hmm. um, a really long way. So in terms of the level of professionalism that you see in our, our small industry, and for good reason, because people are realizing that that it's helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think the push toward using it more systematically has really um, taken it to that next level. So the misconceptions would be that we're, we're trying to, you know, take historical prices and always, you know, predict something mm -hmm. uh, that it's overly predictive. And then you assign these silly names to various price patterns. And I think that adds to some aura of it being not as serious in terms of the analysis. But in reality, it, it's more surface level because it really is only price-based. And I see that as a positive because it allows you to look at anything and have an opinion on it in less than a minute, for, for example. And so. it's objective. You're not, you know, you're looking at the actual data, not someone's opinion about management or a new product or a new, new that's company. That's right. And, and I think in a way that's a good thing because you, you, become less committed to a position mm -hmm. um, if you identify a stock that you're interested in because it, it has a great uptrend or some renewed momentum behind it or it's exhibiting relative strength um, but you've only put in you know 20 minutes of research on it um, I think you're less likely to get married to that position um, but you know the best types of positions in my opinion would have that you know that trend falling you know th those gauges lined up positively, but also have the fundamental backdrop. So that to me would be an ideal setup. And I think more and more people are recognizing the value in using it as that complementary discipline, as opposed to something that's designed to say, okay, well, where is, you know, this S&P 500 going to be in, in five years? Because that's not really, to me, where the value is. I, I love the idea that it allows a degree of objectivity so that you don't marry a, uh, a position uh, a phrase I heard many years ago was strong opinions weakly held. 
And I've always really enjoyed that. We love this, and then it breaks the trend, and that's it. We're done. Right. So to be somewhat noncommittal, um, it, it does tend to help you manage risk. It does. So let's talk a little bit about technology. How has the ubiquity of, of not just computers, but really high-powered software on everybody's desktop, how has that changed the work you do as a as a technician in a very favorable way mm-hmm. um, you know what my first job out of college was actually hand charting these point and figure charts that you described so mm-hmm. um, you know now that we have all these resources to use the upside is it's really unlimited it, it's exciting um, in that we can do so much more in terms of our capacity to not only draw the charts and access the charts but also to filter for different setups and look for different price patterns using some advanced software that can identify these patterns almost for you. It's really amazing what um, you know people have come up with in that regard, and, and it can be very helpful in terms of idea generation, but also you know the, the push towards AI and, and more quantitative approaches to the market, um, they, they tend to have a technical element to them because a lot of them are price-based. You have that, that input, and um, so I think there's a lot of upside there. I think it's still somewhat early stages in terms of what can can be done with it, um, but certainly, you know, anything that you can program, of which a lot of indicators are very programmable, I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of upside there. In the introduction, I mentioned the award you won, which is quite an honorific to receive the 2017, te- essentially the Technical Analyst of the Year <laughs> Award, for lack of a better phrase. Tell us a little about the award and how have your institutional clients responded to that. So the the technical analyst, which is a UK-based organization, mm-hmm. they do an annual awards um, event and ceremony and, and with, with more than one category. So by no means am I technical analyst of the year, but but we do uh, you know appreciate the honor of of being labeled best institutional brokerage for equity research, which of, of course is technical in nature. So we um, you know have publicized that in different ways, you know, a press release, and it's been well-received by clients, of course, and and what their their vote of confidence is in the written product that we produce. Mm -hmm. It's funny that I... I gave your award a promotion. I'm trying to remember. (laughs) I do appreciate it. I was was interviewing somebody, and I could not keep their title straight in my head. It was one of these typically long sort of Wall Street. And by the time the interview was done, I just had given up trying to get their title right. And it was just, and today we have the CEO of JP Morgan. And, you know, they you could see the compliance person in the booths pulling their hair out of their head. It was it was pretty hilarious. But it, it was a big deal. It was a big award. That I'm, I'm not yeah, exaggerating I, when I shorthand it I to... I do believe we, we um, beat out 15 other firms, mm-hmm. and um, that's exciting to me. It, it really is a vote of confidence in, in what we're producing, and they were complimentary of the research as being you know, timely and actionable. We, that, we you got to like that, right? Yeah. So, so let's talk about um, clients today. I... I tease this segment as what modern institutional clients want. What is it that clients are looking for from a technical um, research analyst like yourself? There, there's no one answer to that. In fact, every meeting that I have tends to be quite different 
um, and and we can add value in a lot of ways. The the most obvious way, perhaps, is by being more of a strategist, where we'll ha- we're helping people understand the top down market views, where you know is the S and P five hundred in terms of momentum and overbought oversold measures, and what are levels of importance, things like that. So some clients really want to know that um, because obviously that top down view trickles down into their positions, and, and therein is quite important. And you you find that you know even if people disagree they're often disagreeing for a different reason it's not because they're coming from a technical you know uh, position there it's more macro or fundamental that's leading them to disagree so it's not as much of a debate as it would be if I was a macro strategist perhaps going into an office so so you put out a written research product that gets emailed out weekly daily whenever how often and I'm assuming there are some special um uh, topics and alerts and different things you cover. When that goes to a client, what are the responses? Is it an email response back? Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Is it this is really significant? We need to talk about this right away because you hate X Y Z and it's our biggest position. Mm-hmm. How do you get feedback from clients and and what are those subsequent conversations? So like? the written product by no means is the end all of what we do, but it's mm-hmm. certainly foundational to what we do. We publish two weekly notes. One is our top down view, you know, stocks, bonds, commodities, things like that, and uh, the other is the bottom up work where we look at the individual stocks and uh, you know help with idea generation, look for breakouts and breakdowns and themes. And then we have a daily note to publish some signals and some market internal measures, we call them, and to really manage our call on an intra-week basis. So we're fairly prolific in terms of what we publish, and, and generally speaking, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get you know, questions from those reports, whether they're about various securities, you know, the, the individual equities, that would be one thing, or people would ask about things like crude oil. You know, today, of course, it would be relevant, you know, for crude oil just because it's been in the news. And so I'll, I'll get questions on whatever's topical. And and how often do you find your views are changing on not just the whole market, but specific sectors or specific regions? How frequently do you find yourself saying, gee, we liked this six months ago, but not so much anymore? I, I'm very fluid in my market views, and, and I find that um, when something's strongly trending like the S&P 500 as one, you, you don't change your views that much, except to manage those views from a shorter term perspective to say, well, there's some you know greater risk right now of a pullback. And that type of thing can be very added value to people that are trying to you know, determine whether to wait or, or add exposure mm-hmm. immediately. So we try to manage the views on a short-term basis, but the longer-term views tend to be pretty sticky. Where they're a little bit less sticky would be when you have a range-bound type of situation. So You're it, waiting uh, for a breakout or a breakdown. Right, like a non-trending market. So the euro would be a, um, a great example of one that had been non-trending really for a couple of years until recently we had a breakout in the euro. And that then becomes more of a trending situation. And, and probably for that reason, we'll, we'll stay more sticky in our views. So let's talk a little bit about currencies since, since you brought that up. We've seen a very strong dollar, and and for those people listening to this far off in the future, here we are. It's the summer of 2017. Um, uh, As we're recording this, the Dow and the S&P are making fresh all-time highs. The Dow is up about 120, and it is not all that far away from 22,000. And we had a fairly substantial rally in the dollar pretty much up till the end of 2016, 
Is the euro's gain the dollar's loss? How do you look at currencies relative to each other? And what does that mean for the local economies there and here? Yeah, and I mean, I'm not one to comment on on the macro influences of the FX moves. The way I look at it is as the dollar index, which is really massively um, euro-centered. You know, the dollar index had seen such a nice run-up, as you mentioned, but really in the last few months has just been in this persistent downtrend. Down 8, 9, 10%? It's been, yeah, it's It's really... a pretty big drop year to date. A pretty big drop and and almost um, you know barely interrupted by relief rallies. So mm-hmm. it's really been a persistent drop and, and sort of differentiates itself because of that. And I think when you have a trend like that, you just want to be respectful of it. When you look at the euro, it's not an exact inverse, but it's certainly close to it. Um, you know, if you look at EUR, USD, you see this breakout that I, I mentioned from the, the wide trading range. And that breakout, just simply based on the width of the range, would target about 125 uh-huh. without any indication of the time frame over which that would happen, but you know, longer term. Meaning more euro strength, more dollar more weakness. weakness. And uh, we've gotten some underperformance from European equities and and outperformance from U.S. equities. But I think that shift is, is maybe less currency related and um, more related to other macro influences and, and certainly whether or not those markets are oversold on a relative basis. So I want to say for the past decade, the U.S. is up something like 270%, and uh, Europe is up 11%, and EM is essentially flat. I may be getting those numbers. Yeah, I, you know, it's been amazing, the long-term relative strength ratios, you know, uh, EM versus developed or EM versus U.S., but finally in the past, I'd say, year or so, you've really seen stabilization um, in terms of relative performance globally, and maybe that's because it is so much more of a global marketplace, um, or maybe it's just because finally these markets are, are participating and, you know, their economies are looking better. Whatever the driving force, it certainly has manifested itself in some turnarounds in the ratios. So we're, we're talking about currencies. Let's talk a little bit about something that I think a lot of people find um, challenging or, or, or perplexing. How do you track on a chart the various blockchain currencies like Bitcoin? These things all look like they've <laughs> just become completely unhinged. How do you buy into something like that that's had such a explosive move to mm-hmm. the upside. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I call it a parabolic uptrend when you mm-hmm. see those, and, and they are very difficult um, to find entries that you can feel confident in adding exposure. I do think the charts are very viable ways to analyze these currencies because, you know, otherwise information is somewhat limited. <laughs> so so you can really identify trends, and they're certainly trending. Mm-hmm. And then in order to take advantage of them, I think you need to have confidence in buying breakouts. So if you actually see a fresh catalyst on the charts where you're exceeding a resistance level, then you have to have confidence in, in buying higher. And it's it's often the right thing to do, quite frankly, when these trends are in motion. So with, with the parabolic trends, I tend to watch some of the more sensitive or, or shorter-term moving averages. And when they flatten, I tend to recommend taking down partial exposure. For example, the 20-day moving average would be quite short-term. But when you're in this parabolic up move, that's quite steep. And you see the 20-day flatten, which often happens before you get a really meaningful pullback, I think that can be a good um, mechanism, I guess, to take down exposure. We have been speaking with Katie Stockton, Chief Technical Strategist at BTIG. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter 
At Ritholtz, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Katie, so much for doing this. And I don't know if you remember where we first met, but I want to say it was at Camp Kotak. It may have been. I I feel like we may go back farther than that, but that was a great place. We do go back further than that because I know who introduced us. It was um, Kevin Lane. That's right. Who is a technician who uh, runs a, a, a BD in a research shop. And Kevin was at... I want to call it Technomentals. Is Technomentals, that right? yeah. That's got to be early two thousands. Sounds about right. That's a, yeah. That's yeah. The, the technicians we run in these small circles. It's <laughs> we really all, funny. We that do you... all know each other. I feel like. So I can't tell you how many people I know who took the class with Ralph Acampora, mm-hmm. or other people at the. Um, I don't know what they're calling it now. They just did a big name change because it's now the uh, the. CMT Association Association yes. right. used to right. be the Market MTA. That's right. right. So That's they've right. changed the name, um, which is a bit more aligned with the CFA societies. Mm-hmm. Makes the sense. CMT, which is Chartered Market Technician, um, has really grown as a designation. And, and for me, it's been invaluable in my career because, you know, it, it's, it credentializes you, right, sure. to, to publish this research. But also in in preparing for that, um, you know, you, you do learn a lot of uh, tools and, and other disciplines that might be interesting. And so it helps expand your horizons a little bit. And you've you've become a regular on the on the media circuit talking about various market sectors. I notice you're much more circumspect in the way you discuss markets than some technicians are. Exactly. Some technicians want to get right into the as you could see from this chart, it's a head and shoulders, it's a this, it's a that. You really talk more in a way that a layperson can appreciate what you're saying as opposed to getting into the weeds with some of the more esoteric. Right. And I mean, that is going on behind the scenes, by the way. So mm-hmm. I'm, I am taking the Fibonacci's and the DeMarc indicators and applying them to the ratios. And, and that all goes into the analysis. But I don't do anybody any favors by getting too in the weeds with those mm-hmm. indicators, but rather, you know, explain my discipline and, um, and then, you know, explain the takeaways in a way that people can understand them. So DeMarc is a really fascinating um, set of technicals. I don't know how they work. They're, they're really quite uh, – woman-splain that to me. What, <laughs> what are DeMarc indicators and how do they work? You know, there there's so many of them, and I honestly only scratch the surface with the DeMarc indicators that are available to us. Um, I, I know it's a um, – it's an option on the Bloomberg it terminal. Is, you, can, uh, yeah. you can add it. They have a right. They have a, a service on the Bloomberg terminal, which I do use and, and use it quite a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, you know, I find value in the indicators that that they provide um, in identifying inflection.
inflection points. And it's the closest thing that I have to something that's a coincident indicator of inflections. And as you could imagine, most technical indicators tend to have a lag to them because they're moving average base. So it's just inherent that they have that lag. But there is something about the DeMarc indicators, and at least the ones that I use in their construction, that can get us a bit closer to the actual inflection point. Now, unfortunately, like any indicator, because there is no, you know, one all or, you know, holy grail, uh, we have to cross-reference the DeMarc indicators with other tools, uh, whether it's the stochastics, which will also give you sort of an overbought, oversold reading or or momentum-based tools. Those taken together can give you the best takeaway. And so we don't take every signal for face value, but rather say, okay, what are the probabilities here based on what everything else is saying? So what are what are some of your go-to indicators? What If you had to say, this is where I begin, this is my most important, I'm going to guess it's going to be trend because you've emphasized that so many times. Yeah, it is trend, especially in a trending tape. Um, so I would say in a non-trending tape, which of course is an art in identifying what kind of environment you're in, um, I'll use more of the overbought oversold measures. Sometimes, you know, it depends on the time frame as well. So theoretically, every indicator should apply over every time frame, almost fractal in that way. Mm-hmm. And and yet I found in my experience that, that I get more use from the oscillators in, you know, short term, um, you know, environments. So looking at, say, the intraday charts, looking at a 30 minute bar chart of the S&P futures, I'm actually more inclined to use an overbought oversold measure than a trend following device. It's Makes just sense. a matter of preference, sort of like a trading tool. But I would say if I had to take my one indicator to the deserted island, it would probably be the MACD indicator, which stands for moving average convergence divergence. Mm-hmm. And that has been a really helpful trend following gauge. It's very simple. It's an envelope simple. around the price range. It's, it's not an envelope as much as it is. It's a spread between two moving okay. averages. And, and what's nice about it, it has a signal line. So it, it has a smooth version of the data itself that gives you distinct buy and sell signals. And therein, you know, it takes that some of that gray area, right? So it's either on a buy or a sell signal. And of course, there's nuances to it. But to me, to, to try to capture those, let's call it two to three month moves, which I think really is where we are in the market right now, especially in equities, that you can't afford to miss those anymore. <laughs> you know, it used right. to be you set it and forget it and ride the long term trend. But quite frankly, now, you know, there's such a, I guess, pressure on, on people to perform on a quarterly or even monthly basis these days that they really need to capture these moves. And the weekly MACD indicator, so looking at a MACD on a weekly bar chart can be really um, a great tool for that. So you mentioned when you're in a, tr- um, a non-trending market, when you're in a range-bound market, until this last leg began, and I want to say sometime towards the end of the summer last year, what was it, 18 months or 24 months of not a whole lot of progress, what were you looking at during that period when we were range-bound, and what told you, hey, we're breaking out of this range? What was What was the... Big signal there. You know, the, the, in terms of what I was looking at, it, you know, that, that period... Is that, in, by the way, is that, I want to say 25, 2015, 2016? It was most, yeah, most of 2016, mm-hmm. yeah, at, I guess really at, at the end of to, uh, 2015, it was still, you know, it was, it was morphing into that sort of range-bound tape. But what was range-bound here in the U.S. was actually much more of a correction in the international markets. So if you looked at Japan or if you looked at European benchmarks, you'll see that they really saw a pronounced corrective phase. Mm-hmm. And what captured that was um, not the MACD indicator so much on the weeklies because that was a bit noisy, but if you looked on the monthlies, you actually saw a MACD sell signal on the monthly bar chart of the S&P 500. I believe it was 
oh gosh, I want to say February 2015. So mm-hmm. it got ahead of that environment, which created was you know a more challenging environment for trend following. So uh, with that MACD sell signal that we had, um, we were able to give a bit more weight to the overbought oversold measures, knowing that we were in some kind of corrective period. Um, in addition to that, what we found in 2016, especially it was the year of the climactic lows, right? We saw at the February low of that year, the Brexit low, and then the election low. All of these were really climactic, and and by that I mean the emotions were really running high. You got these massive declines that almost by traditional methods would have looked like breakdowns on the charts. But we have some tools called market internal measures, which would be volume, breadth, leadership, and sentiment that can help us identify these climaxes as they're underway. So volume, you know, to circle back in the conversation to volume, I do look at it on an aggregate basis. And mm-hmm. when it tends to spike is when it actually holds information because that's more emotionally charged trading. It's the change, not necessarily the base rate that matters. That's right. So it's not even the level. I'm just looking for spikes. And, and the market internal measures that I mentioned those really are, to me, the most informational when they're at extremes. Otherwise, I generally or, ignore them. Or what are you looking at internally? Yeah, advancers and decliners would certainly be a breath measure that I look at. Um, I look at them on a cumulative basis and also an oscillating basis. And you know things like the percentage of stocks above their 50-day moving averages and and uh, sentiment. I tend to look at the VIX, but um, I'd say even more so, I look at something called the CNN Fear and Greed Index, which incorporates the VIX, but also put call ratios and junk bonds on demand, things that are transactionally uh, based gauges of sentiment. So I, I tend to find a lot of value in that. And, and right now we're actually seeing an extreme in that uh, in that sentiment measure. Now, in terms of that environment, um, you know, we did see some major oversold extremes in these market internals at those lows that made them appear more tradable. Now, with the breakout, um, it's really when we saw the S&P exceed resistance based on previous highs that we could get confident that, that it was ready to run again. Uh, so when was that? I remember the 2013 breakout, and we've talked about this in the past, was a big, fresh all-time highs, first time in mm-hmm. 13 years, mm-hmm. but um, or, or above levels previously set in 07 and, and 2000. But what was the breakout in 2015, 2016? It was um, about, I'd say, July of 2016 is Mm -hmm. when we broke out. You know, that was on back of the Brexit low. And that breakout yielded um, a measured move price projection, which is a very common way of deriving an upside target when you don't really have resistance to use. And that gave us a target of that uh, at that time of about 2,400, Mm -hmm. which we reached, of course, um, or the S&P 500 reached in, I think it was Q2, and it met some resistance there, which is also a very natural occurrence. Now that we've seen a subsequent breakout above that level, we right. were able to reassign another measured move price projection, in this case of about 26.40. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And right now we're still about 30 points away, 20 points away from 20. 20- Five hundred. We're approaching twenty five hundred, and I think you know it won't be a straight path higher up to twenty six forty. But I think it's a viable target based on the trajectory of the trend, and so that's a context within which we view everything else. So you mentioned the VIX. We should really talk about it because it's pretty much at at record lows. Um, the argument seems to go something like. The VIX is showing terrible complacency and this all ends badly versus, hey, the early 90s, the VIX was in the low teens and stayed there for years. And you still had another seven years of uh, 
bull market to go, how do you look at the VIX? What do you think it means? Well, what I, I don't look at it um, probably in the same way as a derivatives trader might, for example, but rather as a gauge of sentiment and something that tends to have an inverse relationship to the S&P 500. So in that sense, it can hold some information. Um, however, I, I care most about when it spikes. Right? <laughs> and it's, it's difficult to identify when that might occur. We do have some tools that can assist in that, you know, overbought, oversold measures, things like that. Um, but the way I see the VIX is just as one gauge of sentiment. And what we've had to do with the, the fact that it keeps making new lows is to reset our extreme uh, levels or thresholds for that overly complacent reading, which I would argue now it is there. Um, so especially- if it spikes to 12, mm-hmm. which is like a big percentage move from where it is, but 12 or f- even 15 is so low for the VIX, what what might that tell us? Well, uh, you know, for me, if it, if we see it, you know, spike to twelve, my guess is that we're getting a pullback to at least the fifty day moving average in the S and P five hundred. It wouldn't take much to get the VIX to that level. The spikes tend to last maybe two weeks in duration at, at most. So uh-huh. you have to be very quick to act on it when you start to see it maybe inch above its 20-day or 50-day moving average of its own. It is not really a trending index. So we have to be careful using tools like moving averages and, and you know identifying levels because maybe they're less important. What, what are your thoughts about the argument that some have made that well, so many people have moved from stock picking and active management to you have five trillion at BlackRock and four trillion at Vanguard. I think Vanguard is now four point four trillion, um, of which two thirds uh, at Vanguard is is passive, and um, I think once I guess half at BlackRock is passive. That's trillions of dollars that used to be actively in the market. What does it mean that so much money is now passively allocated? What what might that mean to the VIX, if anything at all? You know, I'm not sure how it, it would affect the VIX, except to say that, you know, it should contribute to the trending nature of the tape. Mm-hmm. And therein also would see the VIX sort of, you know, flounder right. at low levels as, as the major indices forge higher. And whether it's passively or actively driven, at the end of the day, um, we want to just be on the right side of the moving averages and, and of the momentum behind the market, regardless of what those momentum forces may be. And so, you know, our goal is to, to understand when the loss of momentum is great enough to lead to a shift in, in that trend that we need to take action around. So it just depends on your time frame at that stage. You know, do you, do you want to miss the 3% pullback or are you okay with that? Are you okay sitting through that? So it, it, that becomes a matter of preference. And you reference sentiment. I've always found sentiment such a challenge to trade off of, except at extremes. So, what do you you reference the three percent pullback? Can you use sentiment to anticipate something like that? What is what is sentiment really? Well, it's relevant to the conversation right now because we do have that extreme reading in the CNN Fear and Greed Index for one, which is enhancing that low reading in the VIX. What, what so goes finally, into we're at, that? We're I, at I, an extreme, right? So you mentioned, are we at an extreme? I think so. I think we've finally reached that for the first time since March based on this one measure. And what I've identified is it typically has a lead time of a few weeks before mm-hmm. you see it. And it's a short-term peak, not not anything you know, really worrisome or bearish, but a short-term peak tends to unfold in the S&P 500 a couple few weeks after you get the extremes and the measures of sentiment. So I think it can be helpful in that regard. However, I 
do uh, give more weight to the momentum gauges or the trend following gauges, whether it's a, a MACD indicator or you know uh, some kind of oscillator, those to me take precedence because they're a little bit closer to the the price data that the market is giving us. And the CNN Fear and Greed Index, what else goes into that besides the VIX? Because I know a number of different um, firms have put out their own Fear and Greed Index, and they very quickly seem to top or bottom rapidly. Yeah. It was sort of surprising that the news flow changed and suddenly they all plummeted. Um, so what else is in that, that index? So it's the VIX, the put-call ratios, uh, junk bond demand, safe haven demand. There's a momentum reading. There's mm -hmm. a breath reading based on advancers and decliners. And, and I think I'm forgetting one. Uh, but taken together, I think you're actually getting a nice system of checks and balances. And what I found is as a an oscillating measure, it's much better than the average sentiment gauge that we all you know grew up with in a way. Um, the survey... Yeah, the, the polls and the surveys at identifying market tops, not just market bottoms. Most every sentiment gauge is quite good at helping us identify market bottoms. But when the when the fear levels spike and everybody's capitulating, that, it just shows up right. everywhere. Yeah, it does show up, and it's a bit you know easier, if you will. And maybe that's because it's been more often a bull market than not. Um, so maybe that's why. But this uh, the CNN fear agreed that index tends to be a bit better at market tops. So the... There are a number of indicators that in the modern era have seemed to have sort of fallen by the wayside. And I kind of have the put-call ratio on the edge of that. So do you remember the odd lots um, indicator? Okay. And then there was the uh, end-of-week money flow indicators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those things all seem to have just withered away because who cares about odd lots? And money flow is, is it's so instantaneous these days that... Right. It doesn't seem to have the same impact. Where, where do you put the put-call ratio? The put-call ratio for me um, burned me a little bit in in 2008. And mm. uh, it's when, you know, the extremes became more extreme. Right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I have a little bad taste in my mouth from that um, that period. And what it's actually done in a way is, is, is led me to give them not no weight, but certainly less weight. And that's mm. why I like that they're one out of maybe seven components of that sentiment indicator because, uh, you know, they're in that that checks and balances system that helps you understand when an extreme is really extreme these days. Um, any other sentiment matter worth uh, discussing? I don't think so. I think, again, it's really more about trend following, support and resistance, overbought, oversold measures, that those really are more important, and that the market internal measures, while they can be very helpful, uh, they're informational at extremes, and, and I think people like to talk about them because they tell more of a story, and we all like a good story um, and want to understand why something's happening. But in reality, the charts are designed to help us understand what's happening. They're not really designed to give you that story. So I almost think that sentiment and breath and leadership get a little too much press. Before before I go to my favorite questions, you, you touched on a subject that's one of my favorite subjects. So why is it that we all like a good story and how potentially dangerous are those stories? How can they lead us astray? Uh, well, and that's what I love about the charts is that they they sort of um, isolate exactly what is happening from a supply demand perspective without um, getting tainted by the stories. And it's not to say you shouldn't have a reason to invest in something. There should always be a reason, and however that reason is derived, um, you know it, that's important because those are the drivers of the trends. Mm -hmm. So there might be some fundamental story that 
that's very important to the future of, of a stock. I, I would not never disagree with that. But when it comes to just headlines and, and hearsay and anecdotal evidence of something, I think it can be very dangerous. And that's sure. why the charts can help us um, sort of stay honest. So um, I, I describe that as monkeys love a good narrative, and, and you explain the dangers of that uh, perfectly. Let, let's jump to my favorite uh, questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests, um, some of which I've written, some of which have come from readers and listeners, including the first one. So what's the most important thing people don't know about your background? Oh, the most important thing people don't know. That's or the most interesting. <laughs> Could be the most interesting. Doesn't have to be important. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just the way you think about the world. And and my background, I was um, not not a talented artist, but I, I've always had an interest in art and things that are sort of more visual in nature. So I think that's you know, it's not something a lot of people would know about me, but I enjoyed it painting and creating things. And um, it I makes think sense for a technician who's looking at at visual data to That's to exactly the right. And I you know, it's something that you can get lost in and, and I think the charts are in a way the same and I spend probably too much time making my charts look really pretty. <laughs> Tell us about um, some of your early mentors. You know, really the people that I've worked for, I've been so blessed in having exposure to them and, and also um, to be able to embrace their disciplines at a young age where I was still somewhat impressionable and, and hadn't, you know, gotten set in my ways yet. Mm. So it would, would have started with Tom Dorsey at Dorsey Wright in Richmond, who inspired me and, and helped me understand how technical analysis f- fit with, um, you know, everything else, really, in, in sort of the bigger world of finance and Wall Street. And um, and, and Dorsey Wright is still going strong. I think they sold the company a couple of years to ago. To NASDAQ, I believe. To NASDAQ. Mm-hmm. And they're still, they now, uh, Tom Dorsey is putting out a number of ETFs, right? They've, yeah, they've I had guess, I say ETFs. Like, I'm not sure how many, but they've had ETFs for a long time. and About and have, $10 billion or $15 billion in, in AUM in that, if, if memory serves? Yeah, so they've been very successful and, and uh, certainly have a great following on Wall Street. And um, you know, from there, I, I worked for someone named Mike Hurley, and that was when I had a stint in San Francisco uh-huh. working for a firm called eOffering, which was at the time, you know, this is late 90s, mind you, the investment investment bank if you trade and we were bought by wit soundview and so i worked with mike hurley and th- that was really my first that name is foray. very familiar yeah he's been around and and uh he was uh, sort of a in the navy and and had just this really interesting approach and you'll actually find a lot of technicians have a military background or a background in some kind of engineering field it just lends itself you know to that kind sure. of analysis and and so he taught me some structured disciplined organized that's right and that's where a lot of the indicators that i use came from it's from Mike Hurley's discipline, um, you know. And then beyond that, I worked for Rick Benson. Your when I was at Morgan Stanley, and he gave me exposure to some of the indicators that, <clears throat> excuse me, really differentiate my work. I'd say from you know the the counterparts at other firms, whether it be the cloud model, which is also called Ichimoku, mm-hmm. um, and Ichimoku. You know, yeah, well, the, actually, it goes it, back to Japanese <laughs> candlestick charting. Is that it, it? Is I think equally um, as old as candlesticks, and in the same way. It, they're designed to give you that sort of one look of the chart where you're getting as much information as you can into that one view. Um, so he, he exposed me to those, which have been invaluable in my work, and also the DeMarc indicators uh, he, he taught me. So I've been very lucky to have people like Rick and Mike and, and Tom 
as mentors, you know, over my career. And, and also, you know, I've been highly involved in the now uh, named CMT Association. I was vice president of that organization for some time and was able to get to know, you know, people like Ralph Ekampora, who, by the way, you know, came to guest lecture that class that I took in college. And he stood up in front of the, the class and took the Wall Street Journal and tore it in half and said, you don't need this anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and boy, he got our attention, you know, all of our, our finance majors in the room. It was pretty, pretty neat. So a lot of people to inspire me. Um, so you mentioned uh, several mentors. What about investors? What investors have influenced the way you look at uh, either markets or, or individual stocks? Honestly, I, I haven't found my inspiration in any of the investors, which, to be honest, tend to be a bit more fundamentally or macro-oriented, the ones mm -hmm. that, that we all know. Um, so I've found it more in the tools that I've uh, you know um, derived from my mentors. So I don't really have an inspiration in terms of my investing style, um, except to say that that it really is you know technical, uh, you know technically oriented, and it came from you know studying for the CMT program and being inspired by some of the methods that I read about in, in that program. Let's talk about books. This is uh, everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some books you've read recently. They could be fiction, nonfiction, market-related, not, and, and some of your all-time favorite books. Oh, goodness. Well, that's a hard question for a mom of three young children <laughs> where reading, you know, time to read books is, is sort of, um, you know, it's hard to find that. Other than The, the Hungry Caterpillar, what else, <laughs> what else have you been looking at? You know, I like to read. I, I like a good beach read, to be honest. But mm -hmm. um, that aside, you know, I, the DeMarc indicators, um, you know, I've, I've read Jason Pearl's book probably most recently on those. And, and that's very accessible. And I think, um, you know, there's not enough literature out there on those. So I've, I've appreciated that. And then it goes back to a lot of the textbooks on technical analysis, which, you know, at the end of the day, it is somewhat of a mathematical discipline. So they're, they're not going to, you know, keep you up at night, but um, at least look give you the tools that you need um you know to so edwards analyze. and mcgee is right sort is, of the martin pring's book you know technical analysis explained which i'm sure has been updated a million times since i first right. read it um so more, more so those types of books as opposed to you know reminiscences of a stock operator that type of thing which is fascinating but really isn't much of a how-to that's it's, right. It's how not to. <laughs> yeah, in a way, it's, right? Learn from others' mistakes, right? Um, so it's it's you know the textbooks that for me have really helped me, you know, move my discipline forward. So so what's your guilty pleasure beach read? Oh, the beach reads. Oh gosh, right now I'm reading Hillbilly Elegy, which is a lot of people love good. that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do like. I try to alternate, you know, fiction and nonfiction just to mix things up, and mm -hmm. um, you know, I I just and then I have my Us Weekly. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a guilty pleasure, Us Weekly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how the industry has changed. Since you joined, let's call it 20 years ago, is that a fair number? So what's the biggest change that's taken place for you as a technician over that time period? It's really the acceptance of the discipline, and it's it's not like it happened overnight, um, but certainly the acceptance of, of what we do every day. And by the way, most people don't do this as their primary career. Mm -hmm. They do it as um, some are just hobbyists. You know, they do it for personal reasons to help their investing, and others are in a different seat, like they're a trader for a hedge fund or their portfolio manager at a mutual fund trying to understand these things. So they can use it in a, in a way that, um, you know, facilitates what they are 
already do. And so, um, you know, the, the adoption has really gotten to the point where I'm not going to client meetings and having to pitch them on the value of technical analysis, but rather to focus on what we can really add value in, which is idea generation, risk management, identifying important levels and, and looking for opportunities. So, so given those changes over the past, let's call it 10 or 20 years, what do you see as the next set of changes within the industry? I, I think it must be, uh, you know, we do a, a lot of project work for clients that's a bit more quantitative in its nature. I don't think you can um, make charts quantitative solely, um, but certainly with the tools that we have, you know, from the technologies that are now offered to us, I think there's a lot of upside in, in applying it more systematically and, and quantitatively, and also in applying it more from a risk management perspective, which we all know is, is quite important. So I think that's going to be the next push and where there's a lot of upside, and I think it's an exciting field. I'll be attending a conference in October um, for the IFTA uh, organization, which is the International Federation of Technical Analysts, and that conference is centering around AI and technical analysis. And I, I don't know enough about it yet, but I think there's some interesting things going on there. That AI and technical analysis, that sounds fascinating. That's really, that's really interesting. Um, there's a quote from Jeff Bezos that I love, and it says something along the lines of, uh, if we're not failing a lot, we're doing something wrong, meaning we have to constantly try things, and, and by definition, some of those things won't work out. So t with that as the preface, tell us about a time that you attempted something and failed and what you learned from that. Oh, well, yeah. And I mean, we could go back to the conversation about the put call ratio, um, you know, in terms of 2008, where, you know, I just stayed with it too long um, because I was giving too much weight to the market internals when I should have given more weight to the momentum and trend falling gauges, which I had always advocated as more important. Mm -hmm. um, so when it actually came to the moment, I just I stayed in too long um, is, is what happened. So so it, it was it was actually deviating from my discipline because I got married to my view. Mm -hmm. So so there is, you know, a lot of risk in that, especially from that top down perspective. And, and we have to, again, keep ourselves honest by really adhering to the indicators, the trend falling indicators indicators especially to help you know us determine our biases and, and so you know as not to get too married to your views so outside of the office what do you do for relaxation and enjoyment oh well you know i I actually don't have a lot of <laughs> time outside of the office, but just I spend time with my kids and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, enjoy traveling. And Am I remembering you were a runner for a long time? I'm a runner, I had sort of an avid runner. Not very far and not very fast, but I still enjoy it. Um, I, I remember I, uh, it was you and Jim Bianco and mm -hmm. who else up in Camp Kotak? And I'm thinking... Yeah, I'm just going to sleep. It, it, it is. <laughs> you guys were up and out running early. It puts me in a happy place and it clears my head. And, and I think that I found that and um, not that I get to paint often, but painting does that for me, too. And I think it's healthy for everybody to, to be able to remove themselves from the market. Something different from what what the regular course of events. are. That's right. And um, my last two and very favorite questions so if a millennial or a recent college grad came up to you and said they were looking for advice about a career in technical analysis, 
what would you tell them? This actually does happen often. <laughs> so I would always say, you know, listen, you, I don't know that um, there's a lot of job opportunity in technical analysis if, as a, a purist, mm-hmm. um, sort of in, in my seat where I'm a sell-side publishing technical strategist. There's not that many of us. Um, and yet I think as a discipline, something that, that you should learn um, as one part of a bigger picture, that um, by all means everybody should pursue the CMT, should actually really take it upon themselves to learn it as a discipline, not only for their career, but also for their personal investing. I think it's invaluable. And, um, you know, just to have, um, I guess, a bigger scope to what you're doing, whether it means also pursuing the CFA or something like this. Um, But as, you know, a a new, um, I guess, a a new graduate going into a firm, I think a mistake that I made that um, now with some hindsight, I can see I would have benefited from really knowing what was going on around me in the firm <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think uh, you know we get so narrow focused in what our day-to-day job is um, especially at a, a younger age um, but we lose sight of of how we fit into the big picture and I think just to know what's going on around you is really um, obviously valuable and our final question what is it that you know about investing charting strategy today that you wish you knew 20 years ago Oh, gosh, I would say probably the DeMarc indicators would be the first thing that come to mind as being a, a tool. Um, so that that came in probably about halfway through my career. Mm-hmm. And it w- would have been great to have you know known more about them in the earlier stages. I think that would have certainly helped, um, you know, around 2000, for example, it, sure. you know, when they would have been, you know, added value in terms of the inflection points that we saw, because that came without very much warning, as you could imagine. Not a lot of divergences ahead of that peak. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Katie, for being so generous with your time. And, and yes. I will see you up at, uh, will I see you at Camp Cote? In Montana this year. This year. Montana. Yes. Oh, well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> we have been speaking with Katie Stockton. She is the Chief Technical Strategist at BTIG. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch at any of the other 150 or so such conversations that we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team who helps put these podcasts together. Medina Parwana is my audio engineer. Uh, Taylor Riggs is my booking producer. Michael Batnick is head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.